the legal cannabis industry has unlocked generational wealth opportunities across the country. But the industry's regulatory complexities, constant state of change, and speed of evolution drive confusion for entrepreneurs and investors alike. On this podcast, we'll interview the industry leaders who are shaping the future of the legal cannabis industry to help our listeners understand these idiosyncrasies. This is Cannabis Unlocked, hosted by Key Investment Partners. Hello, and thank you for joining our webcast, Private Equity Investing in the Flourishing Cannabis Industry, hosted by Kaya Denver Pre-Chapter and CFA Society Colorado. This event is being recorded and will be distributed to registrants following the call. We encourage participation, so please use the Q&A or chat features at the bottom of your screen to ask questions throughout the event. Here to kick us off is our chapter head for Kaya Denver, Jim McCartan. Good afternoon. Thank you so much, Liz, for that nice introduction. Uh, And thank you all for joining us this afternoon for Kaya Denver's Roundtable. Uh, We're going to be discussing private equity investing in the cannabis industry. And I'm excited to have three distinguished guests today uh, that are all seeking to provide us with greater insight into the latest trends and opportunities in the cannabis industry. Uh, The first panelist I'd like to introduce is Pete Carabas from Key Investment Partners. Pete is a founding member of, excuse me, a founding partner of Key, where he is responsible for origination, due diligence, and execution of investment opportunities. Uh, but prior to joining Key or founding Key, uh, Pete was a member of the partner's real estate group. Uh, and after seeing the growth in the cannabis industry moving to Colorado, uh, he pivoted his career to focus on connecting investors with early stage cannabis companies. He holds a degree in finance and real estate from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Pete, thank you for joining us. Next up is Roy Bingham. He is a, he's our next panelist. He's the executive chairman and co-founder of BDSA, or we also refer to them as BDS Analytics. He, is, uh, he earned his MBA from Harvard. He's a former McKinsey consultant and uh, self-described serial entrepreneur. He grew up in the UK and was a banker in London prior to moving to the United States in 1993. He started BDS Analytics after recognizing that the emerging cannabis industry lacked the kind of sophisticated sales-based data that is both commonplace and essential in other more mature industries. Thank you very much, Roy, for joining us. And finally, Jonathan, excuse me, Dr. Jonathan Vaught. Uh, He's the co-founder and CEO of Front Range Biosciences. Dr. Vaught has dedicated his life's work to advancing sustainable agriculture in order to improve both human health and human nutrition. As CEO, Dr. Vaught has built a team committed to bringing the best of modern agriculture to high-value crops that are seeking to improve reliability, efficiency, and safety for both farmers and consumers. Dr. Vaught, Uh, is an inventor of two patents and an author of seven peer-reviewed journal articles. He earned his doctorate in organic chemistry from the University of Colorado Boulder. He also operates a small farm at his residence in Colorado and is a founder of the Mountain Flower Dairy, which is a nonprofit based out of Boulder that's focused on providing educational opportunities for the local community to learn about animal husbandry. Uh, and where their food is sourced. Thank you all for taking time away from your productivity to share your unique insights with all of us. And uh, as a quick reminder, you do have the ability to ask all three panelists questions. Just feel free to type in those questions in the Q&A text box. Uh, Before we begin, it would be great to hear a little bit more about each one of your businesses uh, and and, uh, the unique goals that you have set for your businesses moving forward. Um, why don't we start with Pete, if that's okay? Absolutely. Uh, thanks, Jim. Uh, and thank you, everyone, on the, the call for joining us. It's, it's a pleasure to be speaking with you today um, about the uh, very exciting cannabis industry. Uh, I think you'll find that 
uh, Roy uh, and John and myself, uh, you know, we're on, first to give a little background, I'm an investor in, in both uh, BDS Analytics and Front Range or two of our uh, portfolio companies, um, but a little bit on key investment partners. So myself and uh, my two uh, co-founders at, at Key, uh, we're all former partners groups, uh, employees. Uh, we worked, uh, moved out to Denver all around, uh, call it uh, end of 2015. Um, to, to work for Partners Group and help grow out their uh, New America's headquarters in Denver. Long story short, just saw the rapid growth of the cannabis space from about 2015 to 2019. Um, left uh, Partners Group together uh, to, to go on an entrepreneurial venture and uh, try to raise money and, and connect, um, connect investors to, to the quality early stage cannabis companies we were seeing in the, in the space. So. Um, Key Investment Partners is uh, about uh, two and a half years old now. Uh, we're raising our, our first fund uh, and we're heavily focused uh, on the ancillary sector within cannabis. So um, we focus a lot on what I would call Canatech, um, software, business services, uh, and we'll also make investments uh, in some plant touching companies, uh, but, but uh, they have to satisfy a, a certain level of criteria. And we've just found this is a great place to focus our efforts today. Um, I think this, uh, our strategy will uh, change quite a bit over time. Uh, but as of today, uh, for our first fund, we're, we're focused heavily in the ancillary sector. Um, and uh, yeah, that's a, a little background uh, on, on key investment partners uh, and myself. And with that, I'll, I'll flip it over to uh, John to talk a little bit uh, about Front Range. You're on mute, John. There we go. Can you guys hear me okay now? Yep. Perfect. All right. Well, thanks. And uh, appreciate the introduction, uh, Jim and, uh, and Segway Pete. So uh, as, as mentioned, I have a, an extensive background in biotech, uh, including both science and business. Um, I've been a serial entrepreneur uh, about as long as I can remember. Uh, before starting Front Range Biosciences, I spent about 15 years leading cross-functional teams, uh, developing new technologies and building companies, uh, primarily in human diagnostics, but uh, also agriculture and uh, in food safety. Back in 2015, I saw the intersection of uh, cannabis legalization and ongoing decriminalization and agriculture as one of the biggest market growth opportunities since the deprohibition of alcohol uh, or even the internet. And that was really what, what led to the founding of Front Range Biosciences, uh, really with a vision to deploy similar technology platforms uh, from agriculture and horticulture that have dominated uh, other crops that came long before cannabis. Uh, so Front Range Biosciences is really a cannabis and hemp genetics platform company. And we were founded in 2015. Uh, we've raised over $45 million in capital. Uh, we have around 85 employees right now. We span two states and two continents with operations in Colorado, California, and an R&D outpost in Barcelona uh, through our partnership with the CRAG, which is a, a leading European research uh, institute in agriculture. Uh, we fuse proprietary next generation breeding technology with deep R&D to develop new plant varieties in a broad range of product categories across both the cannabis and the hemp verticals. Our focus is on delivering quality, performance, predictability, and success from every single seed, every single plant, and every single season. We really consider ourselves the first true platform company for the genus cannabis, which also includes hemp. The platform is built on a foundation of genetics, next generation breeding technology, and tissue culture. We've modeled the platform very much after other ag biotech companies before us, focused on plant breeding and seed development. We combine our expertise in genetics and breeding with services and sales of seeds and plants and are capable of delivering sustainable and explosive revenue streams from these product lines, but also at the same time building a robust IP portfolio that creates long-term shareholder value for the company. We believe this plan is the most exciting agricultural development in modern history. It represents an ingredient platform for everything from recreational cannabis products to wellness products, dietary supplements, industrial materials, animal feed, and even plant-based protein. And genetics are truly at the base of the supply chain. They're the foundation for each of these product categories. And it's true across both the cannabis and the hemp industries. So we really are the first company that's executing on the vision 
of the genetics platform that cannabis companies have been pursuing for years. And we've completed the 360 degree cycle from concept to lab, to greenhouse, to product differentiation. And we're really poised now to deliver on that vision in a wide range of product categories across both the cannabis and hemp industries. And at the end of the day, our goal is to be able to leverage our science and deploy our science and provide our partners a product pipeline that delivers their consumers new experiences. Thank you so much, John, for uh, introducing your business. Uh, Roy, we'll pass it off to you to tell us a little bit more about BDS Analytics. Hi, everybody. Thanks very much. Uh, delighted to be here. Yeah, BDSA is an answer to uh, marketing and salespeople's questions about uh, what are the trends that are going on in the cannabis industry? How can I position myself for success? So if I go back into sort of my distant parts, past, I started off in banking and finance, but it was always oriented towards quantitative answers. In fact, I was just thinking I discovered Lotus 123, that wonderful thing about 34 years ago, and um, it changed my life. Um, and of course, we evolved to Excel and then databases, now SQL databases, and the ability to extract, organize data and then extract insights from that data has been the thing that's been very appealing to me for a long time. I uh, started off pretty mainstream, but then moved into the natural products industry, always been attracted to things that are growing rapidly and changing quickly. Um, and then five years ago, I saw what was going on in the cannabis space. Actually, I looked at it about seven years ago. I was a little scared off uh, by some of the people that I met uh, in California and Colorado in 2013. Uh, I didn't see them as being the kind of people who would want our quantitative data and skills back then. A couple of years later, I took another look and I came across normal business people, um, who some of whom had backgrounds uh, using data in CPG environments in order to figure out the sorts of things that we can uh, provide insights on. Uh, since then, we've developed to a company of about 60 employees. Uh, we're based in Boulder, Colorado, but we have people all over the United States uh, in all of the mature and significant uh, cannabis markets. We have uh, data partnerships with thousands of dispensaries. Uh, so they provide us with all of their point of sale transactional information. Um, and we organize all of that uh, into a SQL database. And it's not just organized, but it's matched up to product types with product attributes and product categories. So it's not a big jumble, it's, uh, it makes sense. If you want to know how many vape cartridges that are 500 milligrams uh, were sold in Denver, you know, last week, we can tell you the answer to that question. Pretty fundamental if you're thinking about building a business in that category. Also very fundamental if you're thinking about where are the best market opportunities. Uh, the second thing we do is we understand consumers and consumer trends in this space as well. And the only way we know how to do that is with a quantitative base. Uh, so we talk to 20,000 consumers every six months. We ask them a barrage of questions. Uh, it can take them 20 minutes to complete our survey, uh, but we, uh, we extract a tremendous amount of insight, not just about who they are, but what they care about, how it's impacting their cannabis consumption, when they consume, why they consume, what they consume, uh, um, and what are the reasons for them? Why would they switch from one product category to another product category, et cetera? Uh, so that's the fundamental basis of our business is understanding of product trends and understanding of consumer behavior. We package that all up into understanding the size of the industry, the growth trends for the industry. Um, and what brought me into this space, and I'm sure what's very interesting um, to a lot of uh, investors here, is the, the size of the opportunity. So if I just pull up one slide and share it here, um, it's the only data slide I'm going to bring today. Sometimes I overwhelm people, but look at this growth opportunity. These are our projections. So uh, 2020, in fact, we exceeded this projection. Projection: The industry looks like it was over 17 billion in the United States in 2020. Uh, we expect the United States market to grow to about 34 billion uh, by 2025. So compound growth rate in the USA of nearly 20%. 
Uh, but if you look at the rest of the world, you can see that the rest of the world has a long way to go. It's far behind the United States, but it got tremendous growth opportunity. Canada, of course, has federally legalized um, and is limited by the size of the population rather than by the enthusiasm for legal cannabis. Um, so this is what got me in. When we started in 2015, the total industry was about $5 billion. Uh, so we've seen this dramatic 30% compound growth up to now, and we're expecting that to continue. Um, and so that's a little bit of an introduction in terms of our clients. Well, it's anybody who wants to make an investment into this space um, and who is trying to understand um, where the best opportunities are and also understand the competitive environment as well. We work with all of the major retailers or nearly all of the major retailers who have multiple multi-state operations. And there are many of them now who have 20 to 50 dispensaries. And we work with most of the leading brands as well. Um, and I just want to point out to people who are new to the cannabis space, you know, when I got in, it was basically flour in a brown paper bag. And I didn't really see how our data skills were going to be very useful to that. John would be fantastic at, at growing it and uh, selling it and people putting it in a paper bag. But how is that going to be useful to a marketer? Well, what we predicted was that our brands would emerge and people would start packaging cannabis into different formats. That is, of course, exactly what's happened. Flour sold in a, a bag or a small container of some sort that's measured and weighed in the dispensary is now only about 40% of the revenue in the industry. Uh, concentrates that are all branded and packaged, um, especially for use in vaporizers, but also in other formats represent 35, 40% of products sold in the industry. And edibles are about 15 to 20% of products and they're all branded and packaged as well. So thank goodness for us, what we had seen happen in the natural foods industry and many other industries has happened in the cannabis space as well and consumers we know love uh, branded experiences, the predictability, the consistency, the dependability of a product with which they're familiar and for which they know how they're going to feel is absolutely massively important in the cannabis space, uh, particularly because of the psychoactive effects of the, uh, of the products. Thank you very much, Roy. Uh, and we do have some questions coming in. So thank you very much for everyone that is uh, asked us a question. We will get to them. Uh, I have a couple of questions I wanted to uh, start off with, and thankfully there's some overlap here. Uh, Pete, uh, perhaps you could touch on um, how the industry has changed since November 3rd, and perhaps as a uh, part B to that question, um, and a part C, some attendees want to know how has the regulation impacted your business, and do you see that changing over time? And furthermore, what effect will the recent legalization in Mexico and increasing state legalization have on potential federal legalization? So I think that's all under one large umbrella about the regulatory environment we're operating in today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Jim. Um, well, so a lot to unpack there. Um, I'd say this, you know, uh, for the past couple of years, it's felt like the cannabis industry is almost there. When we talk to investors, when I think about the capital markets and people's interest, um, it's felt like it's really close to there, really close to there. Um, now, after November 3rd, we've seen a huge uh, surge uh, in interest uh, from investors, from private equity, um, from you know, entrepreneurs coming into the space. So I think November 3rd um, was really a, a major tipping point for cannabis. Uh, for those of you who aren't as familiar, we had five uh, additional states uh, legalize cannabis. Um, which was a huge deal. All five ballot measures uh, that were up for vote passed. Um, and then uh, even to make things more interesting, um, we obviously had the Senate race play out in Georgia. As it turned out, we have a full uh, blue Congress, uh, Senate, um, and uh, of course, presidency, um, which uh, as a lot of you can imagine is gonna be very advantageous uh, to those invested in the cannabis industry and those growing cannabis uh, related businesses. Um, in the uh, coming uh, year, I'd say um, there's some interesting acts up to be passed uh, in Congress. Um, you have the States Act, the Safe Banking Act, and the MORE Act are, are the ones you'll, you'll probably hear about. 
Um, I think that uh, the MORE Act uh, is something that we, we may not see passed till about the middle of next year. I think safe banking, uh, which really essentially opens up uh, banking to, to all cannabis businesses, we'll see in the next uh, 12 to 18 months. Um, and then to touch on the, the question about uh, Mexico, uh, you know, it's still something we're thinking about a lot. Um, obviously, uh, there's some market forces uh, in Mexico, cheaper labor, the ability to grow in, in certain climates. I'll let uh, John touch on that a little bit more than myself. Um, but uh, it certainly will have an effect. Um, the, the ironic thing with the cannabis industry to this point was, you know, you had everything kind of started in Canada with Canada, Canada being the first G7 nation to legalize. Um, then you have to come down to the US and now Mexico and in a lot of places in South America are actually great places to grow a crop. So I think it'll certainly there'll be some some market dynamics some pricing dynamics we'll see there. Um, and then, Jim, what was the last uh, uh, part of that question there? Uh, there was another uh, part about, uh, do you think there will be a, a national push to legalize marijuana under the Biden administration, kind of this blue Congress as well? Yeah, yeah, no, and it's a great question. And so, you know, the, the House view at Key Investment Partners is really that um, it's still going to take a, a bit of time. It's certainly going to happen quicker uh, now that now that we have a full blue wave, uh, you know, take the, the U.S. presidency. Um, what I think we're going to see is we're going to continue to see state by state legalization. So the answer to your question is, yes, we're going to see an increase in the pace at, at which states are legalizing. Um, I think the first step you'll see the Biden administration take um, is, is decriminalizing uh, cannabis. Um, I don't think um, a lot of people look at the, you know, the cannabis investment landscape and say, okay, when's the cliff? When is it legal? And that's when all the values unlocked. It, it's really, it, it doesn't end up being that simple. I think you're going to see it removed from as a schedule one controlled substance, which is on par with cocaine and methamphetamine, et cetera. Um, it'll be decriminalized. Um, and then I think you're going to see more and more states legalized in, in 2021. Um, and in 2022. And then I think you're going to end up in the middle of 2022 and you're going to have this critical mass. Almost every state out there is going to have a medical program. Um, the federal government's going to leave it to the states to, to regulate their own, um, own uh, recreational program. And uh, then at one point down the road, I, I, you know, they'll, they'll lift the, uh, the uh, ban on cannabis at the federal level. Um, there's just right now, I, I think it's going to be more of a, a slower, more gradual um, state by state legalization, but certainly much quicker than called the last uh, two, three years. Perhaps before we move on to any other questions, John, Roy, is there anything that you want to touch on from a regulatory uh, standpoint, legalization uh, standpoint that uh, you're seeing on your side of the business? I guess I would just say to echo what Pete said, you know, if it ain't broken, don't fix it. As far as the federal government is concerned, uh, our projections don't assume federal legalization for a couple of years, but we're still expecting dramatic growth because you're seeing states like New Jersey, very likely Pennsylvania and New York. And then some of the southern states that people might not have expected are beginning to legalize quite rapidly, both for medical and adult use. So. Uh, you know, we don't see very much standing in the way of very rapid growth of the industry, irrespective, frankly, of what the federal government does. You would think they might have other higher priorities right now. Yeah, and I, I would just add that, that actually I'm very well aligned with, with everything that, that Pete and Roy have said. I mean, you know, we actually see, uh, you know, continued growth in the market through a, a decriminalization, you know, regulatory regime and then a state legalization or state by state, you know, uh, market expansion and, you know, eventually broad, broad federal legalization. I think you know, we see that on the horizon, but, uh, you know, I don't think it's something that, that happens overnight. And, you know, I think to Roy's point, if it's not broke, don't, you know, don't, don't fix it. Um, you know, I, I think that that holds true here. I think, you know, trying to, uh, you know, rush through a new regulatory regime at, at fe with federal legalization um, could actually potentially be, you know, challenging to implement and even create some some more challenges in the market than, uh, you know, the trajectory that we're currently on. So our projections, I think, uh, you know, are very similar. You know, we we 
we see it working both ways. Um, but I, I think the current trajectory is going to be very beneficial for the business and for the market. And maybe another factor to point out, though, is capital flows and the interest of outsider companies in this space. So it's one thing to say the consumer market's going to grow, you know, state by state, et cetera. But of course, there are major companies and major in investors who are, you know, sitting on the outside looking in and not doing very much except a few of the beverage alcohol companies so far. And, uh, you know, now with the, the change of government environment, obviously those people are taking much more seriously the opportunity to jump in the cannabis space and uh, it's a pretty good environment for valuations for companies that have already got off to a very good start. Thank you for providing some extra insight onto that topic. Uh, the next question is for John. John, perhaps you could identify and share with us who some of your closest competitors are. Uh, and since we're broad broadcasting this beyond just Colorado, if there's anyone, you know, in Nevada, Washington State, Arizona, that you also look at as a close competitor, perhaps you could highlight them in your, your answer as well. <laughs> sure. Well, you know, I think what we're proving is that we really are the first true, you know, platform company in the cannabis and hemp space that can deliver on the promise of a product from R&D, genetics, all the way through scale up, through productization, and now to sales and commercialization. Uh, there are other companies that are doing uh, a piece of this process or, or have built out some component of this process uh, in either cannabis or hemp. Uh, you know, for example, there's, there's been a number of companies in cannabis that have attempted to create proprietary genetics. However, I think few, if any, have really ever been able to truly execute on that vision. Uh, there are also companies in the, the hemp business that are developing genetics and, and creating seeds. Uh, and there are additional companies you know, in cannabis trying to do the same thing, but it's really just a, a one component or one piece of, of what we do. Uh, they also don't have the ability to take advantage of the R&D and cross-functional investment we've made across both the hemp and the cannabis uh, programs in our business to bring true product innovation all the way through from concept and genetics to, uh, to the market the way that we have. Uh, so what we really see is, is silos of different companies that are trying to replicate one piece of what we do. And, uh, you know, I think at the end of the day, a company like ours, it brings the full platform uh, to the market is really going to have the most value for the industry, for our investors, and uh, and and for our partners. Um, and to, so, yeah, that that that's uh, we're not working specifically, or I don't see any specific competitors in any of the states or regions that, that you mentioned right now. Our primary focus is really uh, on the cannabis side in Colorado and uh, in, in California, and in hemp, it's it's national and international. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, Roy, uh, I've got a question for you, and there are many questions piling up, so this might be the last one I throw out there for a little while, and we'll go straight to the queue. Um, but Roy, maybe maybe two questions you could answer at the same time. Number one, what motivated you to seek private capital? And uh, number two, any lessons for those that are considering private equity in their business, uh, what they might think about from a startup perspective before going that route? Yeah, sure. So, you know, we started this business with a very clear vision of what we were going to do. I had been involved in starting a company called Spins, which is the dominant data analytics player in the natural foods industry, had a pretty clear idea of the trajectory of that business and the resources that were required. My co-founder, Liz Stahura, had spent 10 years uh, with another data analytics company that focused on the biking and outdoor industry uh, that was acquired by the number three player in our industry. Um, so we knew what we were going to do in terms of building a business. We developed a, a business plan that showed that the uh, capital resources that we needed initially were beyond her and my ability. We, we didn't have enough money to put in to get the business going. And uh, the other thing was uh, it was going to have to happen quite rapidly because we could see the growth opportunity. We could see the opportunity to just seize a high ground and become the leading player, which we are in this space. Um, but not if we were grinding it out with, you know, two or three data analysts and Liz and me. 
Um, so we basically um, started off with six people, all of whom had worked with us in the past as um, engineers, software developers, and, and analysts, um, and then built onto that quite quickly because uh, we'd raised a, our initial seed round. We raised about 1.5 million in 2015, and uh, subsequently we've raised about another $16 million to get the job done. Um, in terms of advice to people who are bringing in, you know, private equity, it's, it's really a question of whether it fits with your business model, uh, with your market opportunity. I do see uh, people who uh, want to raise outside capital and, uh, you know, the exit is not likely to be there, as in it's a, not a big enough opportunity or it's not an opportunity where there are multiple acquirers, uh, you know, three to five years out who are going to, to want to grab that business. In fact, I've counseled quite a lot of entrepreneurs not to raise capital, just build it yourself, be more patient. And, you know, if you grow out 15% a year uh, for 10 years, you'll have a fantastic business. And you don't, not everyone has to try and grow at 50 to 100% a year as we have done. Um, and so uh, certainly, you know, once you've brought uh, in private uh, equity, it's a different kind of business. It's a collaboration. Um, I'm very pleased to have a very, uh, a very wise board of directors, Pete's a member of our board of directors who both understand our business, but understand the market environment. That's been very helpful rather than just being, you know, Liz and me trying to figure it all out. And then the other thing is, you know, relationships. So your outside investors can bring a lot of very helpful relationships to the table. Some of our clients are actually financial institutions as well who are trying to understand this space. Um, and so there is a you know, direct relationship with uh, our investors as well as our clients. Roy, since you touched on the topic of your growth, there is a question here in the queue uh, regarding your company's growth tra trajectory over the last five years. Uh, and also they would like you to be a little bit more specific as well regarding your growth in 2019 and 2020 as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we can get, get into some of the other questions that that individual had asked. Yeah, well, we're still a young company, so we didn't actually generate any revenue until 2017, or I think maybe in December of 2016 was our first bucks in the door. Um, you know, 2017, 18, and 19, very dramatic growth. I mean, you know, 100% plus uh, growth, but from a very tiny base. Uh, 2020, uh, well, the, the overall industry had a bit of a hiccup in 2019, in the summer of 2019. Uh, the Canadian stocks, the public stocks, were very much overvalued, in my opinion, and it turned out in the opinion of the market as well. Um, several of them collapsed. There was a kind of loss of capital into the space, uh, not just among the public Canadian companies, but to the private uh, US companies as well. Many of them had been on a very, very rapid grow at all costs, don't care about profits type of trajectory. Um, and suddenly they had to change their strategy and say, wait a minute, now we need to get to break even pretty quickly. Uh, the cost of capital has just gone up dramatically. Uh, those are the kind of companies that were buying our services and subscribing to our data. And uh, they went from, oh, we're going to you know, upgrade to a $200,000 subscription to uh, maybe we can only you know, get 10% more on our subscription. So 2020 growth uh, slowed, uh, was slower than 2019 and a little bit slower than we expected. You know, and the COVID factor kicked in back in February, March, April. Uh, where people just weren't really making many decisions that were future oriented. Uh, it's picked up very dramatically. We had a very good December um, and uh, we sh we're uh, pretty optimistic about 2021. And uh, the same and if, your invest and if your investor wants to get more definitive with me, they are welcome to contact me, Roy, at bdsanalytics.com. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> Thank you, Roy. Um, Staying on that same thread from the same individual, they also wanted to know uh, who are your top competitors in that space. And also you highlighted some of the idiosyncratic risk um, that was present within the Canadian companies, but do you see regulation change impacting your business or changing your business model over time? 
Hmm. Um, yeah, good, good questions. Um, in terms of the evolution of the business, well, I think it's not so much regulatory, but actually what's happening is the industry is changing its characteristics dramatically. If you go back five years, we were working with uh, retailers who were largely independents. Actually, there were a lot of people who came into this space from the re uh, real estate industry or actually had legal backgrounds and accounting backgrounds, and they opened a retail store. And they were independent. And then gradually those people have uh, consolidated. Um, so when we started off, it was, you know, there's very little data, very little information, and also not very much ability to pay for it, frankly. Uh, now what we're seeing is the consolidation into lots of companies in the $10 million to $50 million range, a couple of dozen in the $50 to $200 million range. Uh, and those sorts of companies bring in uh, more sophisticated uh, executives and analysts who look for the kind of data that we provide. So we've evolved our platform very rapidly to go from, uh, I can tell you a little bit about your top 10 best-selling products to I can tell you about the top 1,500 or 1,000 best-selling products in your market in with great specificity, the average retail price, um, what the attributes of those products are and all that much more sophisticated information that the market is beginning uh, to demand from us now. Um, and we see a continuation of that trend and us trying to stay out ahead of the demands of our most demanding clients. And those most demanding clients tend to be the people most best capitalized. So, you know, a number of the Canadian stocks have come back now. They've got um, uh, very sophisticated teams, uh, but there are U.S. equivalents that in terms of scale are up there as well. They may, they may not be quite as well-known publicly, but there are some very sophisticated companies out there. And if we can keep up with the demands of those people, then we'll more than satisfy the next tier. Um, and we've um, started to develop a, a, a set of lower priced or less complicated products uh, for companies um, that don't quite have the same resources to spend in the data uh, that the big guys do. Um, and then, of, you know, of course, you know, data, uh, transactional data is available from multiple different sources. And the key for our business is organizing it, sorting it, tracking it, monitoring it. We've processed a couple of billion transactions already into our database. Um, and uh, it's an area where we have uh, constant improvements and efficiencies. What was the other question, Jim? There was another one in there. Uh, so the first one was more more along the lines of competitors. Are there, you know, any competitors oh, yes. that are trying yeah. trying to do the same thing? Yeah. So we do several different things, as I described. I've talked a lot about the retail tracking service, uh, and I mentioned earlier on our understanding of consumers. There are other companies that um, do surveys uh, to understand consumers. No one who does anything like as comprehensive of a survey for as many people on a statistically significant basis, but obviously there are survey companies galore. I find it always rather frustrating when people reference Gallup, for example, saying that 67% of uh, Americans are in favor of legalization. That's one question that Gallup asks of a couple of thousand people a year. We ask 100 questions of 40,000 people a year, and yet Gallup gets all the attention. Rather irritating for me. Um, but, you know, that is a, 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 an area of where there are many players, but there's no one with our depth on the cannabis side. On the um, retail tracking side, there's one other company that has some similar services to us, got started about the same time as us, um, and I'm sure you know they monitor our progress and we pay attention to their progress. Uh, they have some different services from us. We have some different services from them. Um, and that's a company called Headset. I don't mind mentioning their name because we're on each other's radar. But beyond that, there, there isn't any other significant player. Thank you. Um, we've got a couple of questions regarding the public private marketplace. So Pete, this might be a good, uh, segue over to you. Um, one question asks, are public and private markets funding different areas of the industry and supply chain? 
Uh, furthermore, are there segments that are less accessible to public capital today that you expect might begin to tap public markets as they become more prevalent? Yeah, absolutely. And that's a good question. One, one we get uh, quite frequently. Uh, one important distinction to point out um, is due to the federal illegality of, of cannabis today, um, any uh, cannabis related company um, that touches the plant cannot be traded on a major U.S. exchange. Um, a lot of uh, the companies you hear about are on the, the CSE, the Canadian Securities Exchange, which is also has been dubbed the Cannabis Securities Exchange uh, early in, in 2019. Um, a lot of uh, you know, the companies you, you'll see on CNBC, the public companies and whatnot are, are on uh, the CSC. Um, once cannabis uh, is federally legal, um, you know, it'll be just like any other business, of course, um, and we'll have access to, to the public markets. But as of today, um, a lot of the uh, plant touching cannabis businesses um, that are raising money are, are, are funded through uh, private uh, investment and, and private equity um, or large family offices, et cetera. Um, I will say there, there's ways, certain ways you can structure um, cannabis businesses that even if they're involved in, in day to day uh, with the plant, um, you know, depending on, on how you put, them, put together your legal documents, um, you can uh, kind of circumnavigate uh, some of those rules. So I, I will add that, that caveat. Um, in terms of uh, what, uh, the what the cannabis, you know, capital markets are really focused on, I'd say um, a few big things to know. One, um, I think that you're, you see, if uh, any of you are familiar with uh, all the recent SPAC uh, activity, um, in my opinion, you know, there's been so much money raised uh, with the, for these SPACs, these cannabis-focused SPACs, that I, I candidly, I think it's going to be a challenge uh, for them uh, to, to get the money out the door and, and invest it properly. Um, you know, those uh, vehicles uh, have, uh, they really have deadlines attached to them uh, and they have restrictions on what they can and cannot do. Um, they're certainly, it, it's, you know, these specs are, are they're a good deal. Um, a lot of them will do, do great cannabis deals. I think um, some of them also uh, might get pushed up uh, with their backs against the wall a little bit. Um, so that's important to note. Um, I always say there's only X amount of non-plant touching cannabis businesses worth, call it $250 million today. So when you see a billion dollar cannabis SPAC, um, you know, they have to think about, you know, what assets are they, by raising a billion dollars to invest in cannabis, what are you really pushing yourself out from? What are you taking off the table? Um, so, so that's something to think about. Um, and then I'd say, you know, in terms of focus by sector, um, you know, the main public companies you're going to hear about are really the MSOs, the multi-state operators, uh, a lot of which use, uh, of course, BDS analytics and, and work with front range biosciences as well. Um, I, you know, the, other than that, um, you're going to start to see some of these SPACs buy ancillary businesses. We hope eventually that'll be some of the companies that, that we're investing in today. Um, I'm sure a lot of you saw the, the weed maps uh, transaction. That was a, a headline deal that generated a lot of excitement. Actually, was just on the phone with the bank who, who worked on that today. Um, and they uh, commanded over a billion dollar valuation. Granted, they had very impressive sales. So I think, you know, in the first half of this year, you're going to see a lot of M&A activity like that. Um, you're going to see companies getting rolled up. You're going to see SPACs making uh, big plays uh, in certain companies. So it's going to be uh, these next six months are going to be very interesting from a from a cannabis capital market standpoint. Thank you, Pete. Um, you know, one of the uh, one of the first questions that we got was actually about Aurora Cannabis, and you know, since we're we're a little bit more focused on private equity in this roundtable uh, and the alternative markets, um, you know, I'll throw this out there to Roy, John, and Pete, and see if anyone has any uh, unique insight uh, regarding Aurora Cannabis. Uh, but Roy, you did touch on the insane valuations and market prices for these Canadian firms. Back in 2019, the question cites that the uh, share price was closing in on $120 and now trades at about $12 a share. And so the question is, is that a great value or very simply a hidden risk we should be seeking to avoid? And again, it's open to anyone if you have any thoughts or insight uh, regarding the publicly traded market with Aurora Cannabis specifically. 
I must admit, I don't. That's a question for an equity analyst who's studying the market on a day-to-day -day basis. That's not, not my area of focus. I did um, get very excited about the US stocks just from a personal investment point of view about nine months ago, partly by comparison to the Canadian stocks. And I looked at them and said, well, if the Canadian market has had its crash and is now rationally pricing these stocks, then the US stocks are undervalued. And of course, the US stocks have done very well since then. But maybe they're not undervalued anymore. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I, I, I agree with that, Roy. And I, I, um, I, you know, I'll take that question. I'll make a more general comment about the MSOs and, and about the, um, uh, you know, the public markets in general. Um, I think uh, Roy said earlier, which is totally true, one effect of COVID, a lot of us are inside of cannabis are calling kind of this time period cannabis 2.0. Um, you had in 2019, um, a lot of these cannabis uh, stocks get way overvalued. Anyone uh, on the phone, of course, with Kaya or CFA. Um, and I always say you don't even need to be in finance to see some of those, how overvalued some of those stocks uh, were. And, you know, what it was is really just like the same thing as the internet boom. You know, people see that the sky's the limit and they throw out, um, you know, traditional financial metrics and all they're thinking about is growth. Um, then came the, the crash Roy referred to in, in 2019. Um, and then additionally, we ran into everything that, that the world has dealt with, with coronavirus. Um, and so, you know, since then, um, I think that both in the private and public markets, um, people running cannabis companies, investors, entrepreneurs um, have really uh, refocused uh, more on, on profitability rather than just growth. You know, what is our bit, you know, in, in cannabis in early 2019, it was um, everybody who had a piece of software told you how they were going to sell their data in 2025 and they were going to start 10 different product lines and they were going to triple their revenue each, each year for the next three years. And um, you look at, at uh, the cannabis growth expectations and some of that stuff can be believable. Um, and so, you know, as long as you can stay disciplined, you know, I think we've done a good job at that. Um, and, and, and wait for the right timing. Um, you know, I think you, you, you find yourself in a, in a good position. Um, I think that today, a lot of these stocks, uh, you know, there was a point in 2019 uh, where you had, um, you know, cannabis stocks trading at the most ridiculous multiples that made no sense whatsoever. Um, today, I, you know, some of them are strong, um, trading at strong valuations, some would say overvalued. Um, I, I personally think that, um, you know, they're going to, if you're invested in cannabis stocks, I'd say this, they're going to be volatile. There's going to be bumps. Um, they're unsure exactly what they can do in terms of earnings. A lot of the MSOs, um, you know, you'll see some of these guys come out and they, they beat their earnings um, by a landslide and the stock goes through the roof. Um, so I, I think it'll continue to be like that as we see state by state legalization. Um, but, you know, candidly, as of now, that's why we like the private markets. We're, we're much more focused on, uh, you know, traditional financial metrics, getting to profitability, finding great companies like Front Range and, and uh, BDS, uh, who, who are, uh, you know, needs-based businesses, as we say. We know uh, that what Roy's been building is a need to the industry. We know what John's doing is needed in the industry. So once you get to, to that point, um, you know, it becomes more of a question of, who's the right team, what's the right, you know, who's going to execute this, how do we get this done and manage, of course, cash and, and whatnot properly. And, and so um, uh, that's where, where we're focused anyways. But I, I, I do think there's opportunity in the public markets. Um, I would just say um, some of them, it, it can be a, it's going to be a bumpy ride. It all comes down to the addressable market just being, being so, so big. Pete, um since you're talking a little bit about uh, valuations, finding good businesses, would you be able to elaborate a little bit more? Uh, one question that came in was regarding your favorite valuation technique for uh, some of these private businesses. Um, but another question that we had talked about uh, as well was, um, you know, how are you sourcing these ideas? How did you find Front Range and BDS? Um, you know, where, where's your source of inspiration and ideas today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so we, uh, we've, we've, Roy actually was one of the, the first people I met uh, in, in the cannabis industry early on in terms of uh, certainly, uh, you know, prospective deals. 
Um, it's funny. And I, didn't, had... I didn't scare you away, Pete. That's very surprising. No, no, no. no. Well, and I was going to say it, you know, what was funny is we were looking to educate ourselves. You know, we started the fund, we started networking, meeting people, and we were looking to educate ourselves on the industry and look at data. Um, at the time, BDS was a bit expensive uh, for what we wanted to spend, but we, everywhere you looked on the internet, searching anything about cannabis uh, market projections and whatnot, you kept finding BDS analytics. So it, it was funny in that sense that, um, you know, we got to know BDS analytics and then eventually uh, through uh, a, a common connection, got introduced to, to through Canopy Boulder, which is a cannabis accelerator um, in, in Boulder. Uh, we uh, met Roy. Uh, Roy uh, was just starting to raise money at that time. And um, one thing led to another. And, and of course, we ended up being uh, investors in, in that round. Um, in terms of what we look for, Jim, uh, which I, I think you were getting to a bit there, you know, um, we look for, for, like I said, needs-based businesses. Um, we look for, uh, we're more growth equity investors. We want to find uh, businesses like Front Range or like BDS that have uh, a substantial market share in their subsector. Um, we like businesses in cannabis that aren't reinventing the, the wheel. Um, sorry, I'm getting the phone call there that uh, aren't reinventing the wheel. So um, by that, I mean, um, you know, we see businesses like BDS outside of cannabis, right? But these businesses won't touch cannabis because it's because it's federally illegal. Um, you see businesses just like Front Range um, that have been doing uh, genetic development of, of uh, you know, agricultural biotech for years, and you've seen them be very profitable, successful. So you kind of have a blueprint. And then you turn around and you say, okay, who's doing this in cannabis and who's the best management team that's doing that? Um, and, and that's really what we like to focus on. We like a little later stage investments, super quality management team that's been around the block before. Um, and uh, providing some type of software, business service, um, whatever it is, um, that, that is, uh, a, it's a need in the industry rather than a want. And, and we don't feel the need to take, you know, too much early stage speculation. Um, you know, we like businesses that have a strong footprint uh, in a very strong moat around them, which, uh, you know, both BDS and Front Range, and I believe our other investments uh, do as well. Thank you, Pete. Uh, Dr. Vaught, I think this question would be great for you. Um, one of the individuals wants to know a little bit more about the uh, CBD investing environment uh, and whether or not you know we look at THC versus CBD and calculate different growth trajectories in the industry today. So, and I guess there's also a component of this question too that touches on the regulatory environment, and this might be a little bit too far off in the future to really uh, address with any precision. Uh, but let's just say the government does legalize marijuana federally. Uh, does the FDA then have to also update their, their own uh, regulation of THC and uh, research around CBD as well and cannabinoids in general? So yeah, there, all there's a lot of there. question here. Yeah, yeah that's the, 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 that's a big question. And uh, I, I definitely uh, can, can weigh in on a, on a few different areas here. So, um, you know, I think when you look at, you know, the regulatory landscape and the market landscape between uh, CBD or hemp and, and the THC side or, or regulated cannabis, uh, I think there's a few interesting things that, that we've learned, you know, over the last year, especially uh, you know, I, I do think, I mean, the short answer to the question is yes, I think there is, um, uh, you know, a great opportunity on the hemp side and, and CBD is just one type of ingredient uh, that can that can be, uh, you know, produced from hemp and that, that has really gained a lot of traction in the, the consumer marketplace. Um, but I, I, I also think that, uh, you know, the, the really fast uh, deregulation of hemp with the farm bill and, you know, we kind of hit on this earlier, um, you know, the, the, the passage of the farm bill, and then all of a sudden, everybody's jumping into hemp because they can, and it's no longer federally illegal. And, you know, I think it led to, uh, you know, it led to challenges throughout the supply chain, right? So the, the industry wasn't able to, to keep up uh, in some ways. And I think we saw, you know, uh, some, some declines in the hemp market and, and you know, and, and we're 
you know, prices drop for, you know, biomass, for CBD, you know, and, and, and other parts of the, of the supply chain over the last year uh, as a result of that. And, you know, and then some of the regulatory uncertainty from the FDA and, and some of those pieces. So I think, you know, it, it put a bit of a damper uh, you know, on the uh, on the hemp industry. Whereas when you look at cannabis, you know, going through this recession and the COVID cycle that's happened, you know, because of the the you know state by state you know regulated you know framework and the somewhat fragmented market, you know, and then you saw this this movement of public you know support for a continued legalization and passing the ballot measures. You know, the cannabis industry was actually able to sustain uh, you know pretty phenomenal growth. Uh, in, in some areas over the last year, I think. And so, uh, you know, so I, I think at the end of the day, what uh, the way we view it is that, you know, I think hemp is going to start to look and already is starting to look a lot more like, uh, like a commoditized crop, uh, you know, like, like other, other big commodity crops, uh, you know, whether it's corn or wheat or soy. And I, I think we're going to see a long-term trajectory that, that is going to be very big, you know. I, I think it's it's going to be one of the global commodity crops that that changes the whole agricultural landscape, and with new ingredients for everything from protein to industrial uh, components, and then certainly I think the highest value opportunities are going to be in the short term things like broad spectrum CBD, which are like dietary ingredient or supplement categories. Um, I I do think though that you know nearer term, I think cannabis represents, uh, you know, a, a, a more interesting revenue growth trajectory. And I think primarily because it's something that consumers want, right? And consum consumers are looking for experiences and the psychoactive components of cannabis and THC are really, you know, what what's driving consumer purchasing, uh, you know, behavior. And I think we're really just beginning you know, we're just scratching the tip of the iceberg from my perspective, and maybe Roy, you know, may have some additional insight on this. But when we look at cannabis, I think still most of the market, you know, the, the demographics, it's, you know, we're only touching 10% of the population in terms of your traditional cannabis consumer, right? Whereas you start to look, you know, if you look broadly, if you look at a market like Colorado, where the market's really becoming more mature, and it's evolved, you've now got a whole new class of consumers that are starting to enter the picture, right? So people that traditionally never touch cannabis, didn't want anything to do with it. But now you've got, you know, little pills and microdose candies and these other forms that these new consumers can, can, you know, get excited about. And I think the industry is looking for that kind of product innovation on the regulated cannabis side. So I see a, a, a lot of this probably faster and higher margin uh, you know, growth opportunities in the in the regulated cannabis space over the next few years, as hemp is, you know, it kind of hit this big peak, came down a bit, and it's, you know, we think it's, it's probably somewhere hovering around the bottom, and it's going to be a slow, you know, walk back up, whereas I think cannabis uh, has, has a lot more potential for true hockey stick growth, uh, especially from a consumer perspective over the next couple of years, which is really what drives the market anyway. And maybe if I can just put a, a data point on what John was just saying about the adoption of uh, cannabis in Colorado, for example, uh, in our last survey, 42% of adults have consumed cannabis in the last six months in Colorado. The California number is about 38%. Um, and so, you know, it's becoming a very, very, very broadly uh, adopted product. Um, you know, there, there's fascinating data on non-THC um, CBD or can, other cannabinoids as well. And let's remember, we are actually in the cannabinoid industry. It's not just about THC. It's not just about CBD. There are actually, well, John could enumerate, a hundred other is or, or more different phytocannabinoids um, that are being researched in one way or another, at least 10 or 20 of them are being researched at the present time for their, uh, their benefits um, uh, for uh, consumers and, and significant healthcare benefits, of course. So let's not get completely distracted by the adult use opportunity, which is the hockey stick event that has driven so much growth. Um, because in fact, there is you know, tremendous uh, opportunity on the medicinal side as well, and a lot of research beginning to happen from biotech companies. Yeah, and one other thing to add that, that I didn't mention, I mean, for us, 
you know, we've been able to really take advantage of that. You know, we took advantage as a biotech company of that deregulation of hemp early on. Uh, you know, less regulations means it's, you know, it's cheaper, faster, you know, easier to, uh, to develop a, a technology, uh, especially, you know, high tech, uh, things like, like in the biotech space. So, uh, you know, we were able to do that, but because it's all the same plant, scientifically, it's all the genus cannabis, uh, you know, we're able to leverage all of that learning. So we have like one of the, the world's largest field trial programs in hemp, but we're leveraging all of that from our R&D into the cannabis space, right? To, to support, you know, breeding for new traits to help cannabis growers too. So, uh, you know, they're, they're intricately linked in different ways. And, you know, I, I do want to point out that, uh, you know, in hemp, I think there are, you know, really significant new ingredient opportunities. And, you know, again, we're really just getting started. I mean, there's over 500 small molecules produced in this plant. There's about 130, 140 cannabinoids. And uh, then there's interesting compounds like flavonoids and, uh, and, and antioxidants, and, and then you've got protein and oils and fatty acids. So it really is, uh, you know, from an organic chemist perspective, it's a goldmine of new ingredients. And, you know, and I think, you know, we're really just starting to see the segmentation, you know, regulated cannabis and hemp are two really broad categories. But if you look within those, I think there's, uh, there, there are huge opportunities from a product perspective on both sides of the equation. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Roy. We are, uh, we are right at the end of our hour together. And I would like to thank all three of our panelists for joining us today. This was a wealth of information. I appreciate uh, you guys taking time away from your productivity and your businesses to share some ex expertise with us. And to the questions that we were unable to get to, my apologies, love to hear them speak for another hour and maybe we could get them back at a future date uh, to share some more insight with us uh, later in 2021 and hear about all the success that they're having. Uh, but thank you all for joining us and thank you very much and have a great 2021. Take care. This concludes Thanks, our webcast. Thank you for joining us and we hope you'll connect with us again at our next CHI event. Thanks everyone. Thank you. Thank you.